Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Aaron Snyder. And I'm Angie Fryermuth. Today we are talking with Mr. Al Lee, the Director of Civil Works, and this is a very special episode for us because this is a farewell episode dedicated to Mr. Lee and his federal career. And before we get into this, Mr. Lee, I first want to just thank you for your support of the revolutionized Civil Works effort uh, over your time as the Director of Civil Works. Being on this podcast, I think, is very fitting because this is one of the key outputs of that effort. And without your leadership and support, we definitely wouldn't be here today. So just thank you for doing that and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It's a great opportunity, and uh, I've been looking forward to this all week to really just have an opportunity to communicate one more time with our team and just think back about all the accomplishments that our teams have made over the past nearly three years with a big focus on a pandemic and how we executed and really how we changed the way we executed and worked in a more effective and efficient manner. So so I'm looking forward to uh, having that discussion today. So before we get started, uh, just for our listeners who might not know who you are, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role with the Corps? Sure. I'm Al Lee. I'm the uh, Director of Civil Works. I served 26 years on active military with the U.S. Army Engineer Regiment and served with the Corps quite a few assignments all over the continental United States and Afghanistan, Alaska, and other places in uh, CONUS. Spent two and a half years in the Georgia Army National Guard in a combat heavy engineer battalion, and also spent 11 years as of September the 6th as a senior executive with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And I've served in a variety of assignments, both mainly civil works, but also with mill programs and also did some environmental work early in my career in the Alaska district. And I've served in URTIC, it was pre-URTIC, before URTIC became URTIC, our research and development lab. Uh, we had a project office in the Fairbanks, on Fort Wayne, Alaska, uh, with the Coal Regions Research Lab. So that's kind of my assignment laydown. And it's just been a great opportunity working with the civilian teams uh, that I've worked with throughout my career and the military teams that I've worked with in, in the military. So the thing I like the best about the Corps was kind of the adaptability, flexibility, and mission focus of the uh, civil workforce in the Corps of Engineers. It's been just a privilege to work with uh, many of the teams that I've been able to work with around the world in those different type of mission areas. Well, I echo what Aaron said earlier, and thank you for your service to the nation and to the Corps. And it's been a pleasure working with you the last few years. I think the first time we interviewed you for Inside the Castle, you had been in the Director of Civil Works position for a year. And at that time, we talked about where you saw the core going and some strategic direction. So talk a little bit about where we've come since then. Okay, well, Angie, it's it's really been a very interesting few years. Uh, we came on board in January of 2020. And uh, not long after that, 
uh, I was over on Capitol Hill meeting with some congressional members, and that was the last day that Congress was open before the pandemic. So it, it was, you kind of remember these points in time where you were, what you were doing. And so that sort of began our journey on really focusing on how do we work more effectively and efficiently uh, during a pandemic. You know, our, our focus at the time was on continuity of operations. How do, how do we operate all the locks, dams, hydropower plants, all the different waterways uh, that we have people that are working on site, not virtual, 24-7 in many cases, and uh, having to maintain that critical infrastructure during a pandemic. That was the initial focus, and Congress helped us. They provided some opportunities for funding through the CARES Act, and uh, they did that both for our headquarters and our divisions uh, in the Corps, in the Civil Works, part of our mission area. And then they also funded us on the operations and maintenance side to make sure that we could protect our workforce and that we could drive innovation in how we really executed continuity of operations. So some of the key things that came out of that was really, we had been talking about uh, lock operations for a long time, remote lock operations. And so we were able to get some funding uh, through that O&M CARES Act appropriation. And in less than a year, uh, our team working with ERDIC, our research uh, lab in Vicksburg, our navigation team, and a lot of districts and different subject matter experts in the core, in less than a year, we're able to develop a whole uh, remote locking system. And that locking system now can be set up and used on many of our locks in the Corps of Engineers. And the purpose of that was to mitigate risk and allow us to continue continuity of operations at our locks and dams in a COVID environment. And, you know, at that time, we really didn't understand a lot of the dynamics of how we would operate in COVID environments. So it was quite a learning operation, but it just goes to show you the flexibility, innovation uh, that we bring to bear in the Corps of Engineers on how we approach work and how we get work done. And then the second key area since that time was how we performed during the pandemic. You know, when I first came in the Corps, 1995, I went up to Alaska District and one of the uh, teammates that I worked with handed me a white paper, and it was, how are we going to uh, operate in a completely electronic environment, a paperless environment? That was the uh, theme of the white paper. And it's kind of humorous because I came up to the headquarters in early 2020, and I go in my office, and guess what's in, in my office? A stack of paper. So from 1995 to 2020, we're still kind of in the dinosaur age, so to speak, uh, pushing paper around in a headquarters. And what helped us drive that change was really the pandemic. Uh, so you, you really have to take advantages of, of sense of mission focus, urgency, urgent situations, pandemics, those type of events to help really lead and drive change and make the organization a better place to work. And I think we did that very effectively. We went nearly overnight from in-presence, presence all over the core working in our work, work areas to a lot of virtual operations. Now that wasn't across the board, 
but it was at our headquarters. So we were able to lever leverage technology through MS Teams and and also WebEx and Zoom and other you know video services that we could use to communicate. And we also started using electronic routing, transmittals, and electronic signature and maximize that across the core. What I can say today is that everything that I sign now is electronic signature and it's much more efficient. We know where when you're in a virtually distributed environment, you really need to have visibility on where, where your uh, electrons are so that you can track them, you can manage them, and you can more efficiently uh, get your job done. And I think uh, we, we've accomplished that in a pretty big way. And I think we're much more effective and much more comfortable operating kind of in a virtual environment, hybrid environment. I mean, here today, we're talking to each other from three different locations all over the United States. And I'm on TDY travel, and uh, it's just as easy as doing it in my office. And so even when I'm in my office now, 90% uh, of my meetings are, are either virtual meetings or hybrid meetings where I have some you know, in-person presence and then the rest of the meeting is virtual. And I think we've adapted pretty well at that and learned how to, to work through some of the cultural aspects of it through leveraging video and having people turn their videos on and engage as part of the collaboration of, of our teamwork. Because I think it is important that we have a collaboration and teamwork when we're doing uh, the work that we're doing in the Corps of Engineers. It's very essential that our project delivery teams can effectively communicate and collaborate, see each other, and be able to interface and interact with each other as we do our, our jobs and communicate with each other on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect and try to think of what was life like before COVID, you know, before everything was virtual and, you know, what were we working on? And I, I really do feel like the we took advantage of the pandemic as an agency um, by being able to increase workload flexibility. Um, I know all the parents out there are grateful that, you know, you have that flexibility to be able to work from home a little bit here and there. That's good. But I also think that the core just delivered, like we delivered and at the same time, we are getting some of the biggest appropriations that the agency's ever seen. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact of the appropriations that we've gotten and just how the core is focusing on that delivery as we look forward. Yeah, Aaron, thanks. That That is one of the most exciting things that happened uh, during the pandemic is, you know, we, we always used to think about what our uh, limitations were. We kind of operated on on the margins of limitations, and, and I call it the incremental funding mindset. So everything we thought about in the core was based on a culture and a behavior of thinking of things in one-year elements, discrete one-year elements based on regular appropriations, and then how do we maximize the minimum amount of funding we can get every year on each one of our projects spread all over the Corps of Engineers. And probably the best way to describe that is uh, spreading peanut butter everywhere. You know, it's spread all over, it's very thin, and you don't get a lot of it, but everybody wants some of it. And so the difference now, and this is what's amazing, you know, we're, we're talking today about, you know, appropriations that were in the five and six billion dollar annual appropriation range. 
And then something happened. In 2014, we started seeing a little bit of difference. Earmarks went away. And then our appropriations started increasing. Then in 2018, uh, we started seeing massive acceleration of funding. So from 2018 to 2022, if you account for all our revenue appropriations, all our emergency supplementals, and our carry-in from previous years prior to uh, 2018, uh, you add all those appropriations up, and we're talking about just on the federal funding side, $94.5 billion plus dollars in our, in our civil works program. That's unprecedented, and it, it really is a great opportunity. You know, the Revolutionized team helped me uh, really help others visualize this to see themselves because what a lot of times what we heard from the field was, well, we don't have we don't have enough funding to really schedule our project over the full life of the project. And so when we started seeing appropriation levels like this, what we started seeing was a lot of projects got funded to completion. And that creates a whole new opportunity, a whole different way of thinking. And what we're trying to do in the revolutionized team is accelerate project delivery. And how do you accelerate project delivery? You know, I think one of the things that we're doing right now in the middle of implementation is our revolutionized performance monitoring. And that's the shift from an incremental mindset approach to a life cycle mindset approach. And it, it's really trying to leverage the full capability of fully funding, the time value of money, having that money up front, and then giving the flexibility and velocity of being able to execute that funding and not breaking it into discrete increments of work. And so that's the most exciting part to me. I've watched this in New Orleans when we got full funding down uh, after post-Katrina, how we were able to, to really execute that system in a pretty short order compared to our past history and how we implemented civil works programs, projects, and really from the planning all the way to the planning, engineering, design, construction, and O&M. And it's pretty exciting because uh, this year, uh, New Orleans closed out that complete project and it performed very well in a very large scale hurricane that impacted uh, Southeast Louisiana. It has validated itself over and over. And that's the most exciting part about what we do in the core is these projects that we're building, you know, we're not building a Walmart that everybody drives by and says, man, they, they built that in eight months. Uh, we're building projects that have a long lifetime they have a lot of value, and they are going to serve the public over an extended period of time. The benefits of our civil works projects of value to the nation is incredible. Uh, not that a Walmart doesn't have value, but, you know, civil works projects have long-term lasting value uh, to our nation, to the communities we serve, and uh, really uh, it's very exciting to be in the environment we're in to deliver on these type of appropriations. Yeah, it's been really exciting to watch that transformation and the core focus on delivering projects differently. We've done a lot of work to do that. It's kind of curious, you know, where, in your opinion, does the core still need to make improvements on how we deliver projects? I think the uh, key thing that we're trying to accomplish right now is making data informed decisions and really how do we take data 
ensure that we have quality data and then have the analytics, the business analytics part of data in helping us make data informed decisions in real time. I think we're heading that direction right now. The revolutionized performance monitoring is a start. It's trying to get set the conditions so every element of our organization can better see itself. And if you can better see yourself and then you can resource, then you can look across not just one project, but multiple projects. And then you can look at the whole portfolio across the resource constraints and you can make informed decisions about how you're going to adjust resources, how you're going to do your acquisition strategies for your projects. Acquisition planning becomes more important. Uh, looking out, leveraging the full depth and breadth of the Corps of Engineers to deliver. Leaning heavily on our private sector community to deliver because they help us deliver in a big way. I mean, I, I've been doing program reviews right now and you know, I just went to two MSCs and, and what we're looking at and some of the percentages for AE participation is in the high 70, 78 to 80% of these programs are going to be delivered by AE communities. And that's pretty exciting because what it means is that we have full capacity in the core to do all the things that we're doing in design and getting our projects ready to go into uh you know, packaging, contracting, acquisition, award, and construction. And we're going to be leveraging uh, the A&E community to help us do that. And so it's pretty rewarding to be able to see that. And, you know, that that's the beauty of the model for the Corps of Engineers, that, that when you're base level of funding, the Corps kind of does a lot of the work internally in the, in the civil work side, in the planning, engineering, and design themselves. And then when you get larger levels of funding like we see today, uh, we leverage private sector and they're able to uh, team with us, work with us, and we're able to work with the private sector to help us deliver these huge programs uh, that we have. And there's a lot of expectation on what we're going to do to deliver these programs. Yeah, I totally agree. Like leveraging our partners to help us accomplish the mission is, is where we need to go. You have a unique uh, career within the Corps of Engineers where you have been in quite a few regions within the Corps. Can you share uh, some of your lessons learned from your time here at the Corps? Yes, uh, you know, thanks, Angie. It, it, it's been really great. The best part of the Corps is teams. I've had the opportunity to lead different teams in the Corps of Engineers, and some of these have been combined military uh, civilian teams. So I'll give you an example. When my first summit in Erdic in the uh, Coal Regions Research Lab at Fort Wainwright, we we had an issue that uh, ducks were dying at Fort Richardson, Alaska, and you know they have huge migration of waterfowl in Alaska. And so what was happening at certain times of year, the waterfowl would transition and come into some of the marsh areas, and these were impact areas for Fort Richardson to shoot artillery and other ordnance. One of the ordnances they shot was white phosphorus. And white phosphorus, when it hits water, uh, breaks up into particles. And if it stays wet, it doesn't break down. Uh, so it's very toxic. And a lot of the breakdown of that white phosphorus uh, is about the size of a seed that a duck would in ingest if it went into that environment. And so what we're seeing is mass attrition 
and uh, really catastrophic kills of, of waterfowl uh, because of the white phosphorus in the uh, impact area. So I had the opportunity to lead a team made up of private sector. Uh, we had a individual that came retired from the military as an EOD professional. It was a contractor. Uh, they went out and helped us survey our paths in. We'd fly in with uh, helicopters. I would have a squad plus uh, military personnel, and uh, we would fly in. We'd do safety briefings. We would do all the risk assessments, risk mitigation, and then we would fly in with the helicopters, take the explosives in, and we would actually go into the to the uh, alive impact area with uh, this person kind of blazing a trail for us so that we could stay on a safe area. And we'd go in and blow a road crater in the middle of the impact area to drain the water to the lowest point. And then what that did was it allowed us to pump that water out. And we brought in pumps uh, with another helicopter, pumped it out, pumped it back into the river, and then it allowed the, the sediment to dry out. And then the uh, white phosphorus actually sublimated. It, bro you know, it broke down into harmless chemicals of phosphorus and other things. And then the ducks, uh, the ducks no longer had that, had that issue. So the waterfowl, it was very successful. Uh, there were a lot of naysayers on it initially. It was a high risk activity. We had to brief very high levels of the command at Fort Richardson to get them to allow us to do a very high risk uh, activity to mitigate the waterfowl uh, white phosphorus ingestion. So uh, that was just one of the teams I led. Another team I led was post-Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I went up there when I was in Mississippi Valley Division as an SES and led a, a team from Rock Island District. They had an unwatering team of subject matter experts. And we took that team up and then we combined it with the strike force east and west from the U.S. Coast Guard. That was a strike force team that was uh, designed after the Exxon Valdez. They had very specific capabilities of high head pumps uh, that they could pull water or petroleum products out of a hull of a vessel like the Exxon Valdez when it ran aground in Alaska. So they came up to uh, New York City after uh, 13 feet of storm surge, went into Battery Point and really the financial district of New York City. It flooded all the subway systems in the greater New York area. And then we also leveraged uh, the soup salvage unit of the U.S. Coast Guard. So we had really, a, it, was, it was like an interagency task force, a federal interagency task force that we had uh, in New York City, uh, working with the city of New York and the very capable different authorities like the uh, New Jersey, New York Port Authority. We also work with the Metropolitan Transit Authority and all those different agencies had uh, unbelievable capabilities, as you can imagine, in New York City. So it wasn't that we were coming in, taking over the mission. We really went in and helped them and assist them with technical expertise that we had in our unwatering team. And then we were able to leverage private sector uh, a contractor called Don John Marine, and they came in and uh, really helped us pump out some of the subway systems. So we had the U.S. Coast Guard pumping out some of the subway systems. 
we had a contractor pumping out some of the subway systems, and then we're, we're providing technical assistance at some of the wastewater treatment plants, both in New York City and New Jersey, in how they needed to manage those uh, post-Sandy operation. And, and the beauty of this whole mission, we were in and out in less than 21 days. So from the time we were boots on the ground to the time we were flying out of the city, 21 days later, uh, we were back. And uh, it was a very fulfilling mission, uh, very successful, and it really highlighted the partnership of what you can do, what the possibilities are by leveraging the, the local expertise and, and understanding of the environment, the landscape, the facilities. And then on top of that, the city resources, both at the mayor, uh, mayoral level of the city of uh, New York and, and all the capability they have to bear. And then on top of that, uh, the metropolitan authorities, just looking at the Port Authority, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, and other authorities in New York City that had all these capabilities that they could bring to bear. And then really working together and collaborating with them to help uh, the city, you know, recover itself. And that's exactly what happened. It was a great mission and uh, very fulfilling for our team and uh, very unique in, in what we did in, the, in uh, New York City after uh, Hurricane Sandy. Those are really interesting examples and, and really kind of just shows uh, some of the diverse things that folks get to work on, you know, especially the opportunities that the Corps does. And, you know, I always look back at the Corps and I'm in shocked at the amount of missions that we do and what we deliver for the American people. Um, and I know a lot of our, our listeners out there are definitely the proud of the work that they've done. I want to pivot a little bit here and talk a little bit more about you uh, and some of your accomplishments and really kind of curious over your career, you know, what are you the most proud of and why? Now, there's a, a few things that, you know, were just really, really tough missions. Probably the first one is New Orleans. You know, that was just a devastating category five hurricane two days before it came ashore, had unprecedented storm surge in Mississippi, over 28 feet of storm surge that impacted coastal uh, Mississippi and Louisiana area, New Orleans. It overwhelmed uh, the federal uh, levee system. Uh, there were engineering failures in both the levee and flood wall systems that uh, created some of the challenges in flooding in the city of New Orleans. And then that city had to be unwatered. There was over 60, I think about 62 days of unwatering operations to actually unwater the city before a lot of the work that could be done to go in and do immediate uh, response and recovery. And then I came in a couple years after that phase of, of the operation. And after Hurricane Katrina had impacted, I got there in the summer of 2007, and so right after that, Congress appropriated $14.6 billion for that hurricane system, and it was really a system in name only because, you know, what I talked about earlier in the interview about this whole funding mindset of incremental funding, doing that year after year, you can kind of get into a, a habit of not accomplishing what really needs to be accomplished as a system. And what Congress did in the administration by fully funding that system is they allowed us to bring in ingenuity. They allowed us to bring in innovation. Uh, we used new acquisition strategies to deliver 
really in an unprecedented amount of time, over 400 contracts in that system in the greater New Orleans area. Uh, so it was pretty amazing to watch that happen. Uh, we, we had some first that were ever done in the core on the civil work side. First billion dollar design build project, first billion dollar plus early contract involvement project, and then other major design build projects that occurred in very rapid fashion uh, that really leveraged the full depth and breadth of everything we do in the core, from uh, acquisition planning to real estate to engineering to leveraging uh, what we call engineers without border across the depth and breadth of the enterprise to bring the talent and expertise that we need to help deliver the mission. You know, the region and Mississippi Valley Division, along with over 33 districts in the core, helped deliver that national mission. And it was a no-fail mission. Uh, the chief of engineers committed to uh, completing that system by 1 June 2011 to break our backs trying. And that's what the team was focused on, uh, everything we could do to deliver that system. And if you go to there today, the community, the city of New Orleans, the greater New Orleans area is a much more resilient community uh, because of the efforts, not just for the Corps of Engineers, but the whole of the federal government and what happened in that city. I mean, it, it's pretty transformational to see the change uh, that occurred in, in the city of New Orleans at multiple levels. At the levy district levels, they add the state of Louisiana stepped up, added uh, levy authorities. And then we did what I call one of the most strategic things that occurred uh, with the Corps of Engineers is Mr. John Paul Woodley, who was Assistant Secretary of the Army at the time, he ensured that we had one project partner agreement for the entire system. So we didn't have one for every levy district. We had one, you know, PPA and it was signed with the state of Louisiana. That was a game changer because what it did is it elevated the game to a level of seriousness that allowed uh, us the flexibility to execute that mission. And it, it really paid dividends. And the teamwork that occurred, you know, we had New Orleans District, we had Task Force Hope. Task Force Hope was really kind of an overarching policy and program management uh, organization that helped focus uh, the district and also the Hurricane Protection Office, which was really a PM-led organization, a lot different than you normally see in a, in, in a regular traditional district. So we were able to do things uh, very innovative, very cutting edge and leading edge in what we did. And, and those achievements are still cutting edge today. It's not just something that we did one time, I mean, we still leverage some of those capabilities uh, in how we acquisition contracts, how we uh, actually provided stipends for uh, some of the uh, firms that competed for our uh, design bill contracts. Uh, we've repeated that just this year in, in what we're doing to, to try to build our, our next dredge for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So there were a lot of lessons learned a lot of best practices uh, that were used used in there. And we did not do this alone. It, it was our partners in the levy districts that helped us attain and procure and get most of the real estate that was required. The NGOs and the environmental groups, uh, I met with them on a monthly basis. 
and they helped us think uh, larger than just you know individual mitigation project by project. We did some large scale mitigation, and that was all enabled by meeting with these NGOs and environmental groups over the three years that I was in command and coming up with collaborative solutions, not just at the local level, but this included the state of Louisiana, the Corps of Engineers, it included EPA, it included U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, National Marine Fisheries, and a lot of uh, environmental organizations that had great ideas about how to do large-scale mitigation, which is a very big success story as part of the hurricane system. So that aspect of it alone, in my mind, uh, was very tremendous. You know, we increased our transparency and communication. That was one of the feedbacks that when I first came in as a, a, as a commander, that, you know, our, the public told us that they could not access our information. So we hired an analytics uh, team to come in and really look at, at our websites. Some of the critics that complained about our websites, we actually brought them on the delivery team and helped us shape, set up our websites, how we delivered information, how we organized information, and how we made it more user-friendly. And so we were very transparent. It allowed us every individual environmental report that was done in, in the Corps of Engineers in the New Orleans district was posted immediately on the website, and everybody got to see it at the same time. It wasn't just an internal product to the Corps. It was an external project to the public, to the NGOs that wanted to see those, to our environmental agencies that we work with, both at the local, state, and federal level. So it was great collaboration across the team. And I think that was the real power that we saw in momentum that we were able to gain and build and sustain over time. We're nearing the end of our time together, and I just want to give you an opportunity for any parting thoughts before we end the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Angie. I was on a run when I was a, I think I was a captain at Fort Benning, Georgia, and my background to that point had been all tactical. I'd heard about the Corps of Engineers, but I'd never been assigned to the Corps of Engineers. And so I was running with then Colonel Phil Anderson, now Major General Retired uh, Phil Anderson, who was the 36th Group Engineer Commander at the time. And we were just having a conversation about, you know, kind of what are you wanting to do next in your career? And, you know, when you're a young junior officer, you're not really thinking about that too much. So these senior officers are really instrumental in helping you kind of see yourself and then see what other opportunities are for your career. And one of the things that he did was really, he kind of encouraged me to think about advanced civil schooling and then doing a, doing a utilization tour with the Corps of Engineers and then serving in the Corps. And so that that's really what started it. I went, uh, after that, I did company command, then I went back to the infantry school and, and taught as an instructor for a year, and then was able to go to, to graduate school in the Army. That that was, you know, they talk about Command and General Staff College being your the best year of your life. Actually, uh, graduate school was the best year and a half of my life, uh, and, you know, because you really got to go and do something that was completely unique, uh, go back and have the Army pay for your education, not have to work part-time jobs and other things that you struggle with when you're in undergrad grad school and really uh, learn 
uh, a lot of things that help set the conditions for the rest of your career. And so that advice that General Anderson gave me uh, to do that, to go back and get advanced civil schooling and then doing a utilization tour. My utilization tour was in Alaska. So I, I was able to serve two years at the uh, Fairbanks resident office and then one year with the Coal Regions Research Lab as, as the uh, commander of the Alaska Coal Regions Project Office. And uh, that, that was kind of my beginning uh, with the Corps of Engineers. And that was just a fantastic opportunity. Uh, I've been able to serve at every level of the Corps from project office. I've served in labs. I've served in residence offices, area offices, multiple districts, multiple MSCs. And at our headquarters twice, I've had two contingency deployments with the Corps, one with, um, with the Afghanistan Engineer District, and then one as an executive really serving as U.S. Forces Command Afghanistan, but still interfacing a lot with the Corps of Engineers. So it's been a great career, and uh, it's been an honor to uh, serve with the uh, civilians and military professionals that we have in the Corps of Engineers and uh, very exciting times that we have. And I've had the privilege of serving along a lot alongside of professionals like you. And this has just been a great opportunity for me and I'll never forget it. Well, thank you, Mr. Lee. Uh, thank you for your leadership over the, your whole entire you know, federal career. Uh, it's been great working with you. And I really wanted to, to thank you and encourage you know, our listeners and other leaders to, to take the approach that you did you know, really with our revolutionized team, you you let us innovate and push the envelope and you give us the opportunity to, to think and do different things and without, you know, fear of failure. So I think sometimes we have to be able to take those risks to be successful and you really enabled that with our team and we were able to push and make a lot of great change. So just thank you for your service. Uh, it's been a pleasure working with you uh, and really thank you for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights to our listeners. We want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.